going to bring us our reading uh, for today, which is from 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 25, and that can be found on page 314, that's 314 of the Church Bibles. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with, the, with all his master's servants, and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Why haven't, oh, sorry, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped out in the open country. How could I go to my home to eat and drink and make love to my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants he did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at, at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, 
Then say to him, Moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. Thank you for that reading. Um, as I said earlier, my name's Chris Hughes. Um, I have the privilege of being one of the elders in the church, quite recently appointed. I think Paul Alcock, uh, when he was here last week, said he was the oldest elder. Knowing um, Paul's length of hair, I can say I've probably got the most gray hairs of any of the elders. But I'm here this evening to look at what is actually quite a, a difficult passage. When we started this series in David, a few months ago now, we were introduced to David as a man after God's own heart. We were told that in the introduction to him, and that's confirmed in the book of Acts, that that is how God saw David. We're told in chapter uh, 8, that uh, seeing what was going on in chapter 8, verse 15, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. And then when King Solomon comes to talk with God. We're told in um, 1 Kings, let's find my passage, in 1 Kings um, chapter 15, that uh, David, uh, Solomon commanded God, and he said this in 1 Kings 15 and verse 11. I'm oh, sorry, it's one, 1 Kings 9 verse 4 I want to look at. Um, As for you, If you walk before me in the integrity of heart and uprightness as David your father did and and do all I commanded to observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne over Israel Israel forever as I promised David your father. And in the middle, in these confirmations of who David was when God first introduces to him and then in Acts, in the middle of this wonderful description of how he ruled and then how um, Solomon was told exactly how he was to be seen as a man of integrity, we have this horrific account of David's dealings with uh, Uriah and Bathsheba. And we've got to ask ourselves, well, where did it all go wrong? And for this, I'm going to see how bright Elijah is. We're going to have two chairs. You have a choice. Which one are you going to sit on? I sit on this one. Okay. Well, I'm going to say you did better than David. Because David was a king. And this is a time when the kings went out to war. But David wasn't with his army. David was in the wrong place. He was sitting at home in his palace. Thanks very much. He was in the wrong place. 
And that's the very much where this starts. And in that wrong place, one evening, he couldn't get to sleep. Now, I'm an old man, and sometimes old men have problems about going to sleep or wake up during the night for various reasons. We don't know why David wasn't able to go to sleep. But while he was there, he saw something he shouldn't have done. And that was Bathsheba in a nearby house washing. He should not have seen that. If he'd been in the right place, he wouldn't have seen it. If he hadn't been wandering around when he perhaps he should have been asleep, he shouldn't have seen it. So here we are. He's in the wrong place. And he's seeing something he shouldn't see. What does he do? Well, he keeps on looking. He keeps on looking. He gets men to find out who she is. But his first serious error is he kept on looking. And then it went further. We're not given exact details, but he brought Bathsheba to him. There's an old phrase. It could be that it sounds a bit simple. But he had his way, and his way was wicked. He had his wicked way with Bathsheba. And we're told at the end of that section that Bathsheba was pregnant. And then he tries something else. He tries to create a cover-up. And he tries again. Have you ever seen one of those rock formations on a beach where people manage to balance rocks? I'm going to fail dismally. And that's exactly what David did. He tried to cover up what he'd done by inviting Uriah home, by inviting Uriah and telling him to go to his own house so that he could pretend that the child that was in Bathsheba's womb was not his, but Uriah's. And he failed dismally in that attempt to cover up. Then, of course, he goes one step further. He arranges for Uriah to be killed. And we end up in chapter 25, with an, verse 25, with a really horrific statement. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Don't let this upset you. Don't let the fact that Uriah has been killed at David's command upset you. Don't let the fact that he's destroyed a family, he's, he's dealt with Bathsheba in a predatory way. Don't let this upset you. And even for Joab... He'd become a co-conspirator with David in the horrific things that had happened. Here is the end of a horrendous story, a set of events which started quite simply because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now let's put that in the context of something that we learnt two weeks ago. When Andrew was here, 
It was a time when Andrew was so, when David was so excited at the thought of being able to bring the Ark of God's Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. And when Tom was here, when last week, it's talking about the way the Ark was brought in. And in the middle of, in the, uh, within the Ark of the Covenant, there were a number of things. One of the key things was the, the tablets of stone that God had given Moses, which contained the ten laws, the ten great commands that God had given his people. And if you turn back to Exodus chapter 20, we have a reminder of what those commands were, at least the last five of them. In verse 13 of Exodus 20, we're told, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false witness for false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now let's apply that. When he looked again, he was coveting his neighbor's wife. He desired something that did not belong to him, that belonged to his neighbor Uriah. He coveted her. He committed adultery. He tried to bear false witness. That's the one he failed at. But he wanted to. And of course, in the end, he committed a, a murder. But overall, what happened was he stole Uriah's wife and took her to be his own. And hopefully, we can see all of those. Got covert, rather than covet, but never mind. We've got adultery, falsehood, murder. We see all of the things that are there. In every action, in everything he did, the thing that he'd rejoiced in, the wonder of God's goodness, the wonder of God's covenant love, he blasted them apart in everything he did until we end up with that horrific statement of how, don't worry about it, it doesn't matter. And I wonder which step you're on. There is a danger when we read this story. We said, I didn't kill anybody. But the Bible is very clear. You can see it, we're all on one of those steps or another. In one of the letters in the New Testament, it says, if we say we are without sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's not a question of, am I sinning or not? It's, where am I sinning? What aspect of my life? In 1960, there was a song written about a young lady going to the beach. And she wore an itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini. Now, there are a few of us who remember it. Few of us remember it because it's been played. Of some of you, it's going, what's he talking about? But I want to take you to Bournemouth Beach. I'm hoping to go sometime this week. I would guess that many of the swimming costumes that are worn today could take, or at least three or four of them, could be made out of that itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini. And there are some of us here, and we know 
And we need to be honest with ourselves that that is a problem. We see things and they are an attraction to us. And we need to acknowledge that. For others of us, it won't be what we see on Bournemouth Beach. It might be that during the working day, if we go out of this church and turn right and go down the hill, there are the betting shops. For some of us, just seeing those betting shops are an attraction, they're a draw. For many years now, I've been helping a lady and she has a problem with her local off-license. She knows where it is too well. And if she has access to money, despite the fact that she finds it hard to walk, she finds it hard otherwise to get out of her flat, she'd be out for like a shot to go and pick up, well, her favorite tipple was cider. And that's not, really even, not even touching on what we can see on these or on our phones. Each of us has areas in our lives where, like David, if we're in the wrong place, we can see things that are going to lead us in the wrong direction. And we don't perhaps go as far as David, but we need to be honest with ourselves and acknowledge that we, each one of us, is on that same path. We're on one of these steps. And perhaps this evening you need to be honest with yourself and say, I know where I am. I may not have gone quite as far as David, but I need to see where I have stopped or where I'm standing. Because I just want to finish with two things before we look into chapter 12. It gets better. We'll do that in chapter 12. And the first thing is to recognize that David made choices. Did any of you ever have a slinky when you were young? Do you remember slinkies where you'd put them on the top of the stairs and you'd just knock them and they'd roll down and down and down all the way down to the bottom? Really clever things. There's something to do with engineering. Some of the engineers here will be able to explain to me how it worked. And sometimes we think of sin in those terms. And there is a, perhaps a theological correctness to it because we do have a tendency to sin. But David made deliberate choices. He chose to ask who Bathsheba was. He chose to bring her into his house. He chose what happened next and what happened next and what happened next. And we as honest human beings need to acknowledge that we choose to do things that are not according to God's will. That we choose to do things and we can't blame other things. It's our choices that we're guilty for. The second thing it's just something which, in my, in, in my, to my shame, I probably wouldn't have mentioned or thought about 10 years ago. But it's something that God recognizes very clearly in the story that begins chapter 12. And that was the power imbalance between David and Bathsheba. In that story that begins chapter 12, we have a very rich man with lots and lots of um, livestock and a poor man with just one precious lamb. And in that story, a traveler comes, and rather than taking one of his own multitude of animals, he, the rich man robs the poor man of the one animal that he has. And we can see that worked out 
in chapter 11, verse 4, where David sends messengers to Bathsheba's house. Now, I don't know about you, if I send a messenger, we've had communications with John and Mary, and we've been talking about meeting up. Now, I have not said to the postman that went to the, uh, the email, grab them by the shirt cuffs and bring them to me. I can't do that. I don't have the power, the authority to do that. But we're told in chapter 11, verse 4, that David sent messengers to get, to get Bathsheba. In some of the translations, it says they sent messengers to take Bathsheba. And David was using, he was abusing the power that he had as king. In the earlier reading from chapter 8, he, he was acting justly and rightly. He was caring for the people that God had put into his care. But here, he was abusing the authority, the power that he had. And he wasn't the first man in history or the first person in history to do that. And he certainly is not the last. We can see it. We've seen it increasingly become uh, revealed in different spheres of life. <coughs> Excuse me. But this was a man who was a man after God's own heart. And those dangers are real, both inside the church and outside. As far as I'm aware, it hasn't been raised its head here and above bar. But you only have to read some of the Christian press to realise that that has become very real in a number of churches up and down this country, as well as in other countries around the world. Other countries around the world. We need to guard our hearts to recognise that we have, if we have any authority, any place and position of power, that we do not use, we do not abuse that in any way. Particularly, we sang that we're the house of God earlier. We don't do that in the house of God. We must recognise that as being something that's a real danger. But pray that it won't become a reality here in this church. So, we've now got a new heading, I think, which should say, or the next one, which says Steps Back. We had about four steps, five steps there. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous in 1930 developed a 12-step programme. You'll be pleased to know we haven't got 12 steps going back. We've just got four again. The first one is that David saw what had happened. God enabled David to see what had happened. He did that through the story that Nathan uh, brought him. We read it in chapter 12. Um, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children. He shared his food, drank his, from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man. The rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserved to die. 
He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. I don't know about you, but I know that there are times when I am aware that I've done something I shouldn't have done. And if somebody just tells me, Chris, you've done something wrong, my first reaction is to deny it. To close and refuse to look. To huddle down and try and reject what's being said. But what God does with David is he gets underneath his protective shell. He gets to him in a way that forces him to recognise the reality and then realise it applies to him. And I wonder if there's anyone here. And if, in reality, you know that you've done something you shouldn't have done. In reality, you know that you have, well, you know what it is. And if somebody were to come up to you and say, I know what you've done. You're guilty. You'd probably run a mile. But God wants to remind you. Remind you that he has a forgiveness for you. But you need to admit the reality of who, where you are. And it took that story to just get underneath David's carapace of hard rejection to open his eyes to see what it was that had happened and to recognise that what he had done made him guilty guilty before God and guilty in what he had done to those people because the second thing is not only did he see he also had to recognise that this was sin and in this story and a parallel passage in Psalm 51, we see that sin has two aspects. First and foremost, for David, he had forgotten his responsibilities before God. So he had to recognize that he had offended God. So in Psalm 51, uh, we read of his acknowledgement of what he had done. He says in Psalm 51 verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. But here in the passage that we've got, chapter 11, we see too that there are offences against people. He brought about the death of Uriah. He'd broken up their home, their family. He'd been predatory in the way he dealt with Bathsheba. And so we see that a man who started, if you think of a graph with a, a zero here, he's suddenly gone up and recognised his sin towards God. He'd also gone across and recognised what he'd done to those around him. He's out here. He'd been moved because of what he saw to recognise the reality of his sin, both in terms of what it dealt with, in terms of his relationship with God, but also in his guilt in what he'd done to make victims of Uriah and Bathsheba and Joab. 
Not that this is a get-out-of-jail-free card, because there are consequences of his sin, consequences that have an effect on the child that's born, consequences that have an effect on his family going forward. But he has to acknowledge the reality of what he has done. The lady that I help was talking to her this week. First time we've had a, very, a chance to have a serious conversation, probably since um, COVID started. And she knows the damage that she has done to her family, to those around her. But the question she asked when I saw her this week was, can God forgive me? Can God forgive me? And that was the question that David needed to ask. He acknowledged the reality of his sin, but was there forgiveness? And the answer wonderfully, gloriously, is yes, there was. And we see it firstly in what Nathan says in chapter uh, 12 and verse 14. Verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Then he talks of some of the consequences. And we see the outworking of that forgiveness in the birth of another child. The one who is named Solomon. The one who's actually given a second name here in chapter 12. We're told in verse 24, Bathsheba comforted his wife. Sorry, David comforted his wife Bathsheba. She went to, he went into her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent words through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedidiah. And if you look at a footnote in some of the new NIV translations, it means loved by the Lord. Here is the reminder that with David's repentance, with David's acknowledgement of his sin, he was restored to a relationship with God. And that was seen in the birth of Solomon. It was seen in the fact that God's promise to David, the promise that there would be a king to follow on after him, was fulfilled in Solomon when he became an adult. David had many sons. He tells us that in, in 1 Corinthians, as it 1 Corinthians chapter 28, but it was through Solomon that God's promise was be, to be fulfilled. And when God forgives us, there is a real restoration of who we are in God's sight. There's an old hymn that says, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And David found the reality of that. And he found that reality working out in his family as God fulfilled the promise. He hadn't lost it with God. He hadn't been dis uh, treated as of no account and no use of no further uh, place in God's uh, purposes. God restored him because he acknowledged his sin and he repented of what he had done. There are times in my life when I've done things I think, can God ever use me again? Can God ever take a person knowing what I've said, knowing what I've done, knowing the thoughts that have gone through my brain?
can God ever use me? And the answer is yes, he can. But we have to acknowledge what we've done. We have to seek his forgiveness. And then finally, we see the even greater outworking in the birth of a savior. Because it was through David, through Solomon, so we go into Matthew chapter one, we can see that line leads down all the way to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our first time here when we looked, there was a comparison made between David and Jesus Christ, and rightly so. But here we have a contrast. Because Jesus was tested, but he did not fail. We're told in Hebrews that he was tested in all ways, like us, but without sin. And because of that, we can come to him because he understands when we're tested. And not only does he understand, but he also provides a way to enable us to stand up under temptation. We can see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. But above all else, this most wonderful saviour can save us completely, can save us to the uttermost, because he lives, he lives always in heaven to intercede for us. So as we come tonight as God's people, acknowledging the reality that we, like David, have failed, have fallen, we come through our one and only saviour to know the reality that he understands us, that he sympathizes, that he works with us. But above all else, he exists, he lives in heaven to be the one who will save us completely if we put our trust in him. I trust that is true for each one of us here tonight. If it's not yet true, why not take a chance to talk to me, to talk to somebody else after the service? Why not make tonight the night when you come to realize the wonder of what Christ has done to be your utter and complete saviour.